0: Would you please open your Bibles to the book of Ezra? Last week we left off in the book of Ezra. We left off in chapter 6 and that's where we're going to pick up. So this morning, would you open your Bibles to Ezra and instead of moving to chapter 6 where we left off, just go ahead and park in chapter 1. I want to, as I do whenever I preach and you know, I am stubborn about giving you context before we rush into a passage. There is that saying that fools rush in And with the Bible, you don't want to just, you know, rush and roulette it and jump in, and so I want to make sure we all have the same context in mind. So we're continuing this sermon series through the post-exilic text of the Hebrew Bible. We have six books in the Hebrew Bible that cover this era of history known as the post-exile. I have summarized these six books with the phrase, faithful to fulfill, that's what we're calling the sermon series, moving through the post-exilic texts, We are seeing the faithfulness of God to fulfill His promises in these texts. So let's recall the historical context. Assyria and Babylon demolished the people of Israel, God's promised people. God, however, was not defeated. He was not defeated. Uh, he, He was actually in control of this. He was not defeated, nor were His people defeated. You see, it was actually a part of God's plan. It was something that God was doing to give divine discipline to His people for their sin by justly enforcing the stipulations of a Mosaic law. You know from the law of Moses, if you do this, I will bless you. If you don't do this, right, I will curse you. And so God is enforcing the Mosaic stipulations of the Torah among His people. As promised, sin would incur consequences. Injustice would be justly met with justice. Yet still, in God's grace and in faithfulness to His promise, not just to Moses, but more importantly to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant, that there would be a people in a place, the, the promised people in the promised land, and that through this people in that place there would come prosperity to the nations. That promise God was faithful to fulfill, and we see in this section of the Hebrew Bible, in the post-exilic section, where God is doing just that. In His grace and in His faithfulness to His promise to Abraham, the people of God would be brought back to the promised land. And they would become a priesthood for the prosperity of the nations of this broken earth that we're in. They would become a priesthood to the nations of the world who are in need of reconciliation with the God of heaven. Mind you, not just any old God I come today to speak to you of. This is not any old God, this is the God of Israel, the true and living God who eternally dwells as Father, Son and Spirit. This God is revealed ultimately in history in the historical figure, Jesus of Nazareth, who is more than a man of history. He is God of eternity. You see, He is the eternal Son who is one with the Father, the one who was sent by the Spirit to come to live the life that we have not lived, to fulfill the law that we are all condemned in, and to give His life as a ransom for us. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. So God is working through history. He works the crux of it in in Christ in history. But before this, the stage is being set through the people of Israel through whom the Christ would come. So you see, God is working in history, and God is working through these dark aforementioned empires, Assyria and Babylon, to bring discipline to His people, to, to shine His light in the darkness and into the world. God was miraculously working through these world powers, Assyria and Babylon, to accomplish His will, Namely, to bring his people back to faith and repentance and holiness and love. And then to bring them back to the land of promise, in a sense, back to paradise lost. So this is a historical timeline where you, you see we are entering into this post-exile. Here's the exile and here they are coming back. They're coming back. The generations before who had lost their homeland in divine discipline for their sin at the hands of these foreign dark powers, Assyria and Babylon. Uh, Assyria, respectively, executed the north, and Babylon exiled the south. The land, its homes, and its holy temple were reduced to ashes, and what was left of the people were in exile. But God, in his faithfulness to his promises, then used another foreign power, Bye-bye, Assyria and Babylon, there's a new gangster in town, the Medo-Persian Empire. And God used the Medo-Persian Empire to judge those nations, Assyria and Babylon, who cursed Israel. Those evil empires whose furnaces burned God's children into ashes would be judged now by the Medo-Persian Empire. God was using all these dark empires, these imperial powers, for His purposes. So the exiled Jews who were reduced to ash would now rise up like the mythical phoenix. The return of the exiles from the south uh, was, was happening and God was specifically telling them through the prophets that they were to rebuild the temple. The temple was a crucial part of the aforementioned role of Israel as the priesthood in the earth for the prosperity of the nations, reconciling lost nations in, in the fallen creation to the God of heaven. Creation was and is fallen. We were made to live in the presence of God, in an amazing garden of life, and to be in direct, loving community with God, that's what the God of creation did, that's His love, that's what He made us for, to be in an intimate setting, in His presence, that's what He made us for. And yet, sadly, humanity rebelled against the Creator and the Giver of life. As a result, the just consequence was the removal of the people from God's presence. The giver of life we rebelled against and so the just consequence of that is the taking back of life. I gave you life, you rebelled against me, now life is taken back. And so as a result, the creation itself is in a process of dying. Our bodies are in a process of dying. Ten out of ten people die. That is the current statistic. It's always been the statistic and it always will be the statistic. Death has come to creation because we rebelled against the giver of life. So death has come. But get this. The temple had come. And the temple was a place that God gave to His people wherein they could look back on paradise lost. The temple was a picture of paradise lost. The temple was a picture of the the garden and the presence of God. And just as our mother and father enjoyed the presence of God in the garden, now God was revealing Himself in that temple. And that temple with the priesthood then becomes the mediation to the fallen earth to say, come to the God of creation. He's brought His presence back in the earth, and you can be reconciled to Him. You see, in the temple, God's people would serve as priests. And as they did this ministry, they would show the way back to the garden that was lost. And they would show this through the loss of of innocence and, and life. Symbolically, the priests of the temple performed sacrifices in which innocent life was lost as a picture for the wages of sin. You've rebelled against the giver of life, and so life is taken back. Innocence has been lost. So, so the sacrifices are, are showing us and reminding us of the consequences of our sin, but the sacrifices are also giving us an ultimate picture and an ultimate hope that one day there will be a sacrifice that will end all sacrifices and make everything right with our Creator. That, of course, comes Spoiler alert in Jesus who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and fulfills all these pictures that the temple and the priesthood Were pointing fallen humanity to so you see in grace God Gave this holy calling to Israel Israel in sin lost it and so they were exiled and now by the grace of God again the post-exile They're being brought back to the land to restore the temple This restoration would come about in three particular waves of exiles coming back to the Promised Land. We studied the first wave and now we're getting into the second wave. In 538, the Persian Emperor, the Medo-Persian Empire, the new gangster in town who wipes out Assyria and Babylon, basically controls, takes over their lands. The Persian Emperor Cyrus, God used to judge Babylon and liberate his his people as post-exiles in those lands in 538 the ruler opened the doors cyrus he opened the doors for this homecoming last week i showed you a whole bunch of cool archaeology too just in terms of this historical figure that serves to show that you know the skeptics who want to say oh the bible you can't trust it or whatever look this is all corroborated in archaeology in the sands of time so cyrus comes in he takes over these lands Babylon uh, had taken the people out of their land, the people of Israel, used them as slaves, and and eventually they sort of assimilated into the culture as well. So the Medo Empire, the Medo Persian Empire comes in, and they're basically like, hey, look, we're not tripping with the Jewish people. You know, we're not really tripping. A part of the way that they gain power when they take over lands, they look at the people who are occupied, and they are like, hey, your last master was mean. We're not mean. We're, we're cool. We'll let you do what you want to do. Just kiss the ring and be loyal to us. And so that's how a lot of these empires gained their power. And the Medo-Persian Empire was, was doing exactly that. And so they come in and Cyrus is like, hey, there's all these Jewish people here. You guys, you guys obviously aren't from here. Um, you guys, where are you from? Oh, oh, that little place? Oh, okay. Well, all right. Well, hey, if you want to go back, you can go back. You can go home. And, and God uses this wicked imperial power to send his people home and then god sends holy prophets to come haggai and zechariah who you see up here haggai and zechariah come to the people and they they bring the word of the lord to the people and they say hey people what are you doing (laughs) what are you doing you see because god had liberated them and brought them back to the land and, and brought them there for building the temple because they got this really important ministry, priesthood, reconciling the whole planet to God and God is bringing back the garden and all this cool stuff. They come back and they're like, you know, uh, okay, temple, uh, you know, let's, let's do a little weekend warrior. You know, let's go to Home Depot, get some supplies. And they started on it and then they stopped. It's like many projects around my house. There's just duct tape holding on things. I'm like, I'll get to it, honey. And she's in kids' church, otherwise you would hear an amen from the back. But it's like you're just you started and then you stopped. And so the prophets are sent by God to go, hey, what are you guys do like what are you guys doing? And so last week I, I titled the message Back to Work because the prophets are saying you guys need to get back to work, and this week I'm titling the message back to church. And, of course, I I have a play in my terms here because, of course, this is meant in no way to obscure the biblical distinction between Israel and the church. It's a play on something that I would like to pastorally apply from the passage that is before us today. Last week in my message, I applied the building of the ancient temple in this old dispensation of Israel. I applied the building of that temple in the Promised Land. In that former age, I applied that to the new temple that God is building right now among us. You see, God is actually still building a temple. We are studying Israel's sacred calling to the promised land and Israel's sacred calling to be a priesthood and the importance of what the temple was and the rebuilding of the temple. But it it is important for us to remind ourselves that in this age, in this epoch, in this New Testament moment, the temple of God is said to be the church of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6, Ephesians 2. I could go on. We are the temple. The Spirit of God indwells the church in this age. And so with this in mind, as we're studying this section of Scripture and we look at Israel's failure to rebuild the temple, we also need to be challenged in this section of God's Word to think about our calling to build the temple that God has given to us in this age to build the church of Jesus Christ. Like Israel, Israel, we have been given a priesthood to the nations. Uh, Peter calls us the royal priesthood. We've been given a priesthood to the nations to bring reconciliation between fallen and lost peoples of the earth to to come to God for salvation. And to come to God not through the sacrifices of Moses and the temple of old, but through the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus, whose body was the temple of God, which by the Spirit we are joined in union with Him. That said, we mustn't look down on our brothers and sisters of faith in ancient days. We look at our brothers and sisters in ancient Israel for not building the temple and we have to stop and reflect and go, you know what, we, we're prone to do the same thing, aren't we? God has given us a temple to build and we're prone to put other things over it. The prophets in Israel called the people out, uh, Haggai and Zechariah, they called the people out for putting family time over the temple i do that. The the, the prophets called them out for putting home improvements and home renovations over the temple. You're making trips to Home Depot. You're making trips to Ikea. You're making trips to, you know, wherever. And you're busy doing all that while you're not putting the same amount of energy into building the temple. I use the examples uh, that I have just used because those are the examples that Haggai and Zechariah raise. And those kinds of examples like our home and our family Th- those are serious temptations because those sound like good things and those are good things and those are often the things that the enemy of God uses to dupe us and derail us. You know, you say, oh, you're not building the temple because you're busy smoking crack, you know, <laughs> or you're busy like stabbing people, you know, you go like, I, I, you know, I I'm not like stabbing people and smoking rocks or whatever, you know, like that's not, I haven't been tempted to do those uh, in my life. But see, it's the good things in our life, like, oh, family and like sports and extra, like, the, you know, earning a paycheck and these things that are inherently good that the enemy's going to use to pull you away from doing the work that has been uniquely given to God's people. Things that no one else can do in this planet have been given to the church of Jesus Christ. What an honorable and high calling that has been given to us. And so as we study this, we want to be challenged in our North American consumer Christianity that is rampant with such a lack of priorities for the ministry of the temple of, of God in, in the earth today. As we continue in Ezra, this application from one dispensation to another, is, it, it's fitting for the church in North America, especially in this peculiar hour in which we find ourselves. I have in mind the cultural moment of the so-called post-pandemic and polarized politics of the last few years that that, uh, candidly exposed quarrelsomeness, hypocrisy, division, misplaced priorities, and sin in the church of Jesus Christ. It resulted in many believers who flocked to echo chamber congregations to fit their socio-cultural and political idols, and scores who stopped coming to church altogether. I was reading an article in Christianity Today on churches that have permanently closed. They didn't survive the last few years. According to a Barna study, one in three churchgoers dropped off in the last few years. Church membership has dropped below 50% for the first time in 2020. The last time these numbers were this low was in 1940. Studies are showing attendances down. In another Christianity Today article, a journalist observed, and I quote, "...while people steadily returned to church services in the first half of 2021, the trend hit a plateau." Going into the third year since COVID-19, congregations and their leaders are left with the reality that the people who worshipped alongside them before may not be coming back." According to LifeWay research, the people who attended once a week and once a month before the pandemic, drastically down. Now, historically, things in Israel were far worse, but we, as we come to the Word of God, want to apply the Word of God and be challenged by it in our particular context. What was true in ancient days is still true today because God's people are prone to wander from the work that has been given to them. And that's why it is a great gift of God for us to gather on Sunday, on Lord's Day, and to hear His Word and hear the prophetic challenge of it tethered to the Gospel, lest we get heaped with the guilt of the prophetic word and law and not hear of the One who will lift that guilt for us and empower us by His Spirit. God is faithful, church. Amen? God is faithful. He is faithful to carry us through. He is faithful to bring a, a word to us that's hard in order to soften our hearts and to raise us up to know His joy and His purposes. So God brought three waves back to the land in the post-exilic era. We've been studying the first that came under Zerubbabel. And now we are getting into the second with the historical figure and the author of this book, Ezra whose turn it is now to bring a wave of people back to the homeland. Now, for those outside of the land, if you're taking a pilgrimage back into the land, the term that is used for this is aliyah. Uh, there's a pop singer, Aliyah, who was you know, hot, hot in the 90s or whatever. Aliyah is the term that is used when you're coming back into the land. It is the term that means literally like going up. It is a term for pilgrimage. So Zerubbabel led aliyah. Ezra is now leading aliyah. Ezra, Zerubbabel, um, Zerubbabel is, is tied to, in prophecy, he's tied to David. He is a descendant of David. Zerubbabel carries the seed of David, who has the promise of the Messiah who will come and restore the earth through God's temple and the priesthood. Of course, when you get to the New Testament, Jesus of Nazareth, you see in Matthew chapter 1, verse 6 and verse 12, that Jesus is the descendant of Zerubbabel and of David. So at this point in history, hundreds of years before this, seeing Zerubbabel, the seed of David, coming back to the land brought messianic implications. We are seeing God's faithfulness to restore this temple and we are on the edge of our seat to see if he will bring the Messiah to us. Okay, so Zerubbabel comes, Ezra comes. We're getting the context here. And as Ezra comes, he is going to see uh, certain elements of this calling to build the temple that are going to be very discouraging. As the rubbable goes, there's great procrastination. As I said, the people did a little weekend warrior and put a little elbow grease into it, and then they're like, ah, let's build some houses. Let's start some uh, little league teams, you know, let's uh, build up some companies. And they got, they got busy with work and life and other things, and the temple was just sitting over there with crickets and dirt and trash on it, you know. And so it's a rubbable. He's like, man, this is very discouraging. This, uh, this ministry is very discouraging. Uh, and then Haggai and Zechariah are like, hey, back to work. Okay, you guys back to work. And now this second wave, Ezra is coming in, and it's like, hey, back to church. We're not just building a temple, we're building a worship center. And as we're studying the text, what we're going to see this, this point on your outline of fruition, we're seeing prophecy is coming to fruition. I ask you to turn to Ezra 1. And in Ezra 1, look at how it begins. Ezra 1, 1. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, I love this clause here. In order to fulfill the word of the Lord. So so the book begins saying, God is going to make good on this. While we are faithless, He remains faithful. He is fulfilling the word of the Lord. Now, what follows that little clause right there? By the mouth of who? Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a prophet. God is fulfilling prophecy. Okay, Jeremiah the prophet predicted the destruction of Jerusalem, the exile of the people, and their return to the land. Jeremiah is before this, and Jeremiah predicted this was going to happen, that they would, get, they would catch a beat down, and that, and that God would use that to restore them and bring them back. In the 25th chapter of Jeremiah, the prophet actually specifies that the exile would last, specifically, 70 years. And by golly, this is exactly what happened and how long it lasted, 70 years. Keep in mind, again, Jeremiah is saying this decades, like 60 years plus before this actually happens. We're going to catch a beat down, but that's okay because God's faithful and he'll bring us back in 70 years. Jeremiah himself, he's known as the weeping prophet. He was carried off to, to Egypt and he died outside of the land of promise. He didn't get to see this, but what he did see is written in prophecy. God will bring us back 70 years. In fact, some 67 years after he gave this prophecy, the prophet Daniel would be reading the prophecy of Jeremiah and the prophet Daniel is going, man, what's, what's up with this 70 years? What, what's up with this? I'm getting excited because, you know, Daniel's an exilic prophet too. He goes into exile. I mean, what's up with his 70 years? When is that going to pop off? And so if you write down Daniel 9 and you study Daniel 9 this week, you'll see one of the most amazing prophecies in the book about Israel and the land and restoration and coming back. The thing is, long before Ezra, long before the book in front of us, the prophets said this day was going to come. And based on Ezra, we see God was stirring this day to come. He was fulfilling it. And so all props and respect go to him. Daniel was in exile. He served in Cyrus's imperial cabinet, if you recall from the book of Daniel. So Daniel might have even been in the ear of Cyrus like, hey, bro, um, let me show you something. This is a prophecy. This scroll is a prophecy uh, uh, that our God gave generations before uh, about this very thing that is happening in front of us, and it says that you are going to let the people go back to the land. He might have been in his ear. Uh, m- maybe Daniel would have not just said, hey, let me show you Jeremiah. Maybe Daniel might have even said, hey, Cyrus, let me show you Isaiah 44, 28. Now, in case Isaiah 44:28 28 isn't familiar to you, let me just put it up here so that you can see it. What is Isaiah 44? It is I who says of Jerusalem, She shall be inhabited and the cities of Judah. They shall be built, and I will raise up her ruins. It is I who says to the depths of the sea be dried up, and I will make your rivers rivers dry. That's God speaking. I, God, Jerusalem. Okay. It is I who says, God says, "Of, of Cyrus. God says Cyrus in Isaiah, long before Cyrus is on the scene. God prophesied. It is I who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he will perform all I desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. This is written 150 years before Cyrus. Before before Ezra wrote Ezra. The prophecy gives the name of a man who did not exist. He has now come into existence, and he is in control of all these lands, and the occupied peoples, including the people of Israel. If you keep reading in Isaiah, this prophecy is—it gives you goosebumps. If I had hair on my head, it would be standing up. It's just—it's powerful. Uh, he goes on to describe in the, in the prophecy. He's calling—he's calling him by name. He he details the prophecy does how God would use Cyrus to, to bring about His will and bringing the people back. And I, you've got chapter forty-four in front of you. Let me show you chapter forty-five. In chapter 45, God actually says of Cyrus that he will anoint him as a servant to rattle the nations for the sake of Israel. Look at this. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus his anointed. That's actually the phrase for Mashiach or Christ, the anointed one. Cyrus is his anointed, whom I have taken by my right hand to subdue the nations before him and to loose the loins of the kings, Assyria, Babylon, to open the doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. Why are you doing that, God? for the sake of Jacob, Jacob, my servant, Israel, my chosen one. I have called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. He doesn't exist. Of course he doesn't know you. I have aroused him in righteousness, and I will make all of his ways smooth. He, speaking of Cyrus, will build my city and will let my exiles go free without any payment or reward, thus says the Lord of hosts. God spoke the word concerning Cyrus, and now in Ezra, not only has He spoken the word, He's stirring the spirit of Cyrus to do what His word said. I didn't just say it and leave you to figure it out. I said it and now I'm making it happen. Now, here's the sad irony, as I've already, we've, already, we've already reflected on. The sad irony is that God's own people weren't being stirred? They were sitting. Many of them chose to stay in Babylon. I talked about the waves that went back. Many of them said, I'm not going back. leah can go over there with that. I'm not trying to do Aliyah. I'm cool. These Medo Persians aren't that bad anyway. This is is way better than uh, Nebuchadnezzar and those guys. I I like Cyrus. Cyrus, you know, he's he's nice to us. I like this Persian stuff. They got the bomb kebabs, the kabudeh, the dolmeh, those little grape leaves with the meat on the inside, the shirazi salad. I like the Persian rugs. Are you kidding me? I'm not going back to Israel. I'm staying right here with my Persian rug and my little meat grape leaves. You guys can aliyah all you want. Peace out. It was nice knowing you. Have fun. Think about it from Ezra's experience. He's never been there. The homeland of his people is not his home. On the one hand, it would have felt like a dream that after so many years of being in a foreign land, the Jewish people could go home, yet at the same time, the dream was apparently a nightmare for many who chose to stay in comfortable neighborhoods rather than sacrifice for the building of the temple. I mean, you, you can imagine if your parents were like got asylum status and immigrated here or whatever, and all you know is this culture. And then some man of God, some prophet comes to you and says, Yeah, you got to go back. And be my witness. You're like, Yeah, you got to get out of here with that because I'm not doing that. For those who wanted to honor God, they went back. Imagine the discouragement when they got to Jerusalem and they saw the scene of the building site in Jerusalem after 15, 16 years of it being untouched. And, 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 and you come and you sacrifice everything. You, you leave your Persian rugs and all that good stuff and you, you sacrifice the suburban dream and you go and you say, I'm going to build God's church. I'm going to build God's temple. I'm going to sacrifice to serve this city. And you get down there and you look around and everybody's got, everyone's just playing, playing soccer, basketball, painting their houses and and you're like looking at the site and you're going, are we supposed to be like back to work, back to church? Okay, I I hope this is helping you appreciate the text that's in front of you. All of that to get us to chapter 6. Yes, I'll try and get us out on time. Okay, chapter 6, the favor of God. God's bringing it to fruition, and now God's giving favor. Chapter 6, where we left off in verse 13. Let's move quickly. Then Tadanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozenai and their colleagues carried out the decree with all diligence just as King Darius, Darius had sent. So Tatanai, if you recall from last week, he's a pagan government worker. The government gave the people the green light to go home and to build in fulfillment of prophecy. The, re- the, the rebuilding of the temple, of course, was at a, at a standstill because people were like, eh, Let's, let's, let's go do stuff for ourselves. You know, I need to have a little me time. I need to treat yourself. And they just kept treating themselves and left the temple. Okay? This, they gave them the green light. The green light wasn't a passive green light either because the verse describes the government workers, their colleagues, as we just read. Uh, they themselves carried out the decree with all diligence. Do you see that? So again, the irony that the, the pagan imperial oppressive powers are actually working harder than the people of God. The the work for diligence here is one that means quickly and speedily. In other words, they were not lollygagging, the pagan government workers, they were actually active in trying to help the people rebuild their temple. It is worth noting that for the word uh, for uh, speedily or quickly here that is used in the text, it is actually of Persian derivation. This reminds us that the author of the text was a product of Persia. He was was raised there. And so that's actually a really fascinating thing about the book of Ezra is it contains these Persian loan words. It also contains Aramaic in the text. And it also contains Hebrew in the text. So Ezra is, 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 is is a kid who's grown up in different cultures and probably, frankly, has a hard time trying to figure out where he fits in. You're not going to fit in in Persia. You're not going to fit in in the Aramaic context. You're not going to fit in in the Hebrew context because of this weird post-exilic era. Now, Aramaic, uh, thanks to Darius, became the lingua franca of the Persian Empire. So, so everyone spoke that. That was very popular. You may recall the Aramaic manuscript I'll put it in front of you that I showed you last week. You recall this if you were here, the elephantine letters in ostraca that archaeologists found. And we found in this discovery uh, evidence of the Persians letting their subjects go back and rebuild temples to all the naysayers who are like, oh, the Bible, you can't trust it. You're like, get out of here with that. Have you heard about the Elephantine letters that documents that these Persian rulers let Jewish people go back and rebuild temples? All, All of this to say, not only is this history, this is a powerful model of witness. The people of God learned other languages and they were using them to witness. Think about that. Like, Israel's calling was to bless the nations. And so the fact that Ezra uses Persian words and Aramaic words shows that the God of Israel, the God who revealed himself in, in Hebrew, is, is speaking to these other contexts. In fact, in speaking of Aramaic and God's people being a witness, look, look up here at this inscription. This is an inscription that uses Syrian Aramaic. And what's the other language that you see up here? Chinese. This is Chinese. This, this found in the sands of time, this piece of archaeology, brothers and sisters, documents the arrival of Christianity in China in 635 AD through the Church of the East. This artifact documents early faith in China. The monument or the stelle is believed to have been buried in the 800s because there was a wave of persecution against Christians. It was unearthed in the Ming Dynasty in the 1600s. Chinese scholars published a written copy of it, and scholars all around Europe came to see it. The writing speaks, get this, of the triune God. So again, for people, oh, the Trinity, you know, they made that up. I watched Da Vinci Code. I know everything. I, I study YouTube. No, no, no. The ancient church bore witness of the triune God. It speaks of the triune God. It speaks of the fall of humanity. It summarizes the work of Jesus the Son, Mentioning the works of scripture that had been preserved in the community. So again, oh, the Bible's been translated and you can't trust it. No, no, no. You got people in China with copies of the Bible. Get out of here with that. It records 150 years of the church's history there in China through a missionary named Alapen who brought the gospel to them. Now, I show you this to illustrate the missional spirit of our faith and that missional spirit goes back to the days of old in Israel. God has always been calling His people to be missionaries. God has always been calling us to be a people who are inviting the lost to come in. From the days of old, of Nazareth, to the days of the apostles of Jesus, to, to Alapan and, and, and people bearing witness in China in the, in the early centuries of the church, our faith is one that learns other languages, that adapts to other cultures, that brings testimony that the God of Israel is the God of creation of all peoples and He is saving a people for Himself among the nations. The Aramaic of this stel, the Aramaic of Ezra, is not the only parallel that we can pull from this artifact in front of us. Just as Ezra had the pagan government backing him, so did the believers in China around this time. You see, this this piece in front of you, it actually records the presences of houses of worship that were supported by the pagan government by an imperial decree not to oppress Christians, and it tells of imperial gifts and support being given to churches. In our day, we think of the PPP loans that some churches got, and people are all oh, separated from church and state. Uh, Yeah, separation of church and state, but that doesn't mean we can't work together. The pagan government, uh, God has used to bring support to the church throughout the history of His people. This monument ends with a list of dozens of Christian clergy members, and it ends with a celebratory poem. In this poem, it speaks of churches. It speaks of true doctrine. It speaks of revival. It speaks of revival happening in China around the Word of God. Let me quote from it in English. When the pure, bright, illustrious religion of the Church of the East was introduced to our Tang Dynasty, the scriptures were translated and churches were built. End quote. You see, a revival came by the word of God having been translated to the people and that birthed churches. Verse 14 of Ezra, look back at it. The elders of the Jews were successful in building through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah. Just as what was happening in China at this time, that's what was happening for Ezra. They brought the word of God, and God was building his temple. You bring the word of God, and that's how lives change. That's how people are saved. This is a word that we need to hear in North America because many churches are thinking, no, no, no! You like we got to get smoke machines and lights, and you know we got all this, you know, this celebrity culture and whatever. You know we got to get that, and then people. No, you don't need all that. You need the word of God. The word of God. To quote theologian, uh, Dr. Schaefer, the word of God. Look at this: is the agency by which faith is generated. It is written, "Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God." Romans 10:17. In the same connection, the Apostle declares the Scriptures are able to make thee wise unto salvation, 2 Timothy 3.15. And Peter states that it is through great, precious promises that men may be partakers of the divine nature. The psalmist declares that the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. So also as water, the Word of God cooperates with the Spirit in the accomplishment of new birth, John 3. Being born again, not of the corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the Word of God. 1 Peter 1.23 People get saved through the Word of God. That's why we preach the Word of God. And we realize that people are going to think that's foolishness. These long sermons ain't going to do nothing. People aren't going to want to come back. No, no, no. God uses the preaching of His Word to change our lives, brothers and sisters. Historically, the greatest revivals of God's people, from Israel to the church, have always centered in the Spirit of God, moving through the Word of God. Saving sinners and transforming lives. In our tradition as Protestants, this is very clear in our tradition. In fact, if you're free on Wednesday nights, a little shameless plug here, Wednesday night, 7 o'clock, this room, I'm going to be lecturing on the Protestant Reformation. So consider all yourselves invited. We're going to have a grand time. And as you may know, one of the key figures in the Protestant Reformation was this guy named Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a student of the scriptures who began to bring the Bible to the people. He took it from the original languages and he translated it. Just as Ezra drops, drops knowledge in Aramaic and uses Persian words, Luther took the Bible and started translating it for the people. And what happened with Luther? A great reformation happened around him that blew up and exploded all around Europe. Now they asked Luther, bro, how did you do it? Like, how did you do it? Like, what? Luther, how did you do it? In Luther's own words, I'll put them in front of you. Here's what he said. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word of God so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. Had I desired to foment trouble, I could have brought great bloodshed abroad abroad Germany. Indeed, I could have started such a game with the emperor and it wouldn't have been safe, but... What would it have been? Mere fool's play. I did nothing. I let the word do its work. What do you suppose is Satan's thought when one tries to do a thing by kicking up a row? He sits back in hell and thinks, oh, what a fine game the poor fools are up to now. But when we spread the word word alone and let it alone do the work, that distresses the devil. For it is almighty. And it takes captive the hearts. And when the hearts are captured, the work will fall of itself. I was just having drinks with my homies. I didn't do anything. The Word did everything. That's the Matt Jones paraphrase of Luther. It is the Word of God that does the work as the Spirit moves and the church is faithful to lift up the sacred text in high proclamation. We lift it high in proclamation and we bring it low to the streets where people are. And the proof is in the pudding. There are millions and millions of people around the world who say their lives are changed by this book. Keep in mind, these are not just lives of the lost who are converted by the Word. These are the lives of the redeemed who hang on to the Word of God. This is why it is so important for us as believers to sit under regular teaching of the Word of God in fellowship with saints in a local church. Because it is the Word that builds And that is what Ezra was experiencing. Look back at the text, verse 14. The elders were successful in building through the word, Haggai and Zechariah. And then it says what in verse 14? And they finished building. If you were reading straight through Ezra, from chapter 1 up to this point, you may wonder about the absence, at this point, of Zerubbabel. Remember we talked about old Zerubbabel in the first wave? Notice he's not mentioned here in verse 14. This could be the case that he died in the process. In which case, this is a reminder to us that God's work needs to be intergenerational. We need generations going before us who are working for something that they cannot see. The pastor who started this church in the 1950s, I had the pleasure of meeting him, they started a church that they could not see. And that, and that work carries on. And we're building today for something that we will not see so that we hand this down to a generation because we believe that God is worthy to be praised in West Los Angeles to the ends of the earth. Zerubbabel is not named. It reminds us of our intergenerational calling. Also, it reminds us of the sacrifice in doing God's work. Jesus spoke to His disciples about carrying a cross, being willing to die for planting churches. We have to be willing to do the same to build the temple in our age. And they finished, verse 14, building according to the command of God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes of Persia. They finished. They finished. That's great. You know, God's changing the people by His word. The lollygaggers who are out doing other stuff instead of, you know, building the church. Now their lives are changing. They're, They're coming in repentance and faith. And God's using, you know, pagans and other stuff. And it's all coming together according to plan. So keep in mind the timeline that I showed you before. Keep in mind this timeline. Cyrus lets them go, 530 BC. They stop like 535. They've been kicking it, but God brings word and their lives start changing. Verse 14 speaks of specific rulers, Cyrus, Darius, we talked about them. And here he talks about a guy named Artaxerxes. We haven't talked about him much. Who is this Artaxerxes guy? I like to call him Artie, old Artie. Artie likes to party, okay? Who is this Arty guy? Well, Arty, Artyxerxes is not a name, it's a title. It's a title of a throne for various Persian rulers in the Persian Empire. Uh, originally, it wouldn't even sound like Artyxerxes. It would sound like Ar- Arkasta Shasta, which is kind of a mouthful, right? But uh, Ar- Arty is a lot easier to say, so we'll just talk about Arty. If you are a student of history, there it gets a little frustrating and hard because there's a whole bunch of Arty's. And you're like, okay, which Arty are we dealing with here? You know, which one? Uh, well, the Ardita that is mentioned here in Ezra, verse 14, is, uh, t- is, is probably Artaxerxes I, commonly called Longamanus. He is the son of Exerxes, who is the famous ruler, uh, Ahasuerus, who we actually read about in the book of Esther, who we are going to be studying in this sermon series, actually. We're going to go through the book of Esther. So he was a man of war and bloodshed. He was a shrewd politician who was very interested in power, and he wanted to have more of it. That said, it is all the more incredible, knowing the blood thirst of this man and the darkness of this man, that God was using this man to shine His light and love. I mean, God is so uh, countercultural; like He just blows your wig back. Like He takes the weak to shame the strong, He takes the foolish to shame the wise, He takes a pagan, corrupt guy, and uses that to like show His righteousness and truth and love. Verse 14, the people were successful. They finished building according to the command of the God of Israel and the decree of, of Artaxerxes, Darius, and Cyrus. There's something that's cool here in the verse that you miss if you're just reading in English. The word for command and the word for decree. So you have the command of God, and then you have the decree of Cyrus at all. Now, the word for command, listen, it's ta'am. Ta'am. And the word for decree is ta'em. It's a bit of a wordplay there. He's saying to a to m a to You got the to m, but I got the Ta'am. It's very creative on his part. This is to have a wordplay that is showing the reader these guys aren't independent actors. These guys think that they are, uh, you know, they they think that they're getting away with a little to but it's actually Ta'am. God is the one who is in control of old Artie. Speaking of Artie, it's worth noting or reminding ourselves how in Ezra four. Uh, Artie accepted the haters' accusations against Jerusalem. This isn't the first time we've met Artie in the book. We see him in chapter 4, and the haters come and start tripping on God's people, and Artie backs the haters. But here we see in chapter 7 that God's ta'am has changed old Artie's to M, and now he's using him to accomplish his will, which reminds me of this great verse in the Bible, Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. What a powerful verse. What a verse we need to hear in a day where so many people in our nation idolize politicians to be their saviors. No, no, no. They're pawns in the hands of the king. In the case of Israel, they were called to suffer for the sake of the temple. God's work called for sacrifice. Sacrifice would be marked not by drudgery, but by desire. It would be a supernatural thing. God would fill them with joy. The Holy Spirit would bring them joy. The triune God was in control. We see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit throughout the Bible on the move, graciously inviting His people to enjoy His work. The temple was completed, Ezra 6.15, on the third day of the month of Adar. It was the sixth year of the reign of Darius. So they experience success. It happens in the month of Adar. Adar is the sixth month of the government civil year, the 12th month of the spiritual year of the people of Israel in the Hebrew calendar. In terms of our Gregorian calendar, it would be in the month of March, which for them was a month of 29 days. And so scholars calculated around March 12th, which is kind of cool. And the providence of God, we're studying this right around when it would happen in our calendar. Anyway, Adar was uh, uh, the month for this to happen. In Jewish tradition, the month of Adar is associated with the birth of Moses, the death of Moses, the ninth of the tenth plagues in the Exodus where God rescued the people through darkness just six weeks before their abolition from slavery in Egypt. What a great month. What a great success. That said, recall that Haggai, in Haggai we saw that after all of that hard work, when they rebuilt the temple, we see in the prophet Haggai, that There were some old timers who were there who weren't so happy about it. Here's a picture of the temple juxtaposing this new temple with the temple of Solomon. So as the new generation is sacrificing to build the church, if you will, the old generation that came out of exile are like, this building is whack. Solomon's was better. The way you guys are doing church, nah, Solomon, that's how it's done. Now, the irony, of course, is that the temple, this temple, the new one that they built, would actually last longer than Solomon's temple. Further, this temple was built in spite of themselves and even funded not merely by the giving of the people, but it was actually funded by the giving of pagans. And in fact, in speaking of Adar the month, it is worth noting the month's name, like all others in the Hebrew calendar, was adopted by the Babylonian calendar. And in the Babylonian calendar, it is named after the pagan god Ahar Adaru, Adar. The pagan, this pagan god uh, is an Akkadian plague god who is known for mayhem and pestilence, who is responsible for political confusion. But in God's providence, God flipped the script on Adar and used it for bringing clarity to the confused and meaning out of mayhem. God was in control. I hope this excites you. So that whatever you're going through in your life, you know as well, look, God's in control. If you're in Christ, He has you. He has your back. Oh, that God's people would live this way. As the Psalmists remind us, do not put your trust in princes, in mortals in whom there is no hope. Happy are those whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. Psalm 146, verse 3 and 5. Don't put your hope in earthly powers. Put your hope in the heavenly sovereign over all things. This brings the people to festivity. Verse 16, we read that the sons of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. The wording here is very interesting. It speaks of the sons of Israel and not the Jewish people. Uh, Scholars note that the sons of Israel is a technical term that is used in the Old Testament for the covenant people. Keep in mind the 12 tribes, 10 of them in the north wiped out by Assyria and scattered. This is why people talk about the 10 lost tribes. And cult groups love that, because they're like, we're the lost tribes. No, you're not. Get out of here with that. But, you know, the ten lost tribes, and then you had a couple of tribes left in the south that were brought into into Babylon, right? So you, you have maybe not everyone there, but Ezra says, no, everyone is here. These are the sons of Israel. They represent us all. Ain't nobody lost. God got them all. And they're all right here. And we're having a dedication. And the word in the Hebrew for dedication here is, get this, Hanukkah which makes us think of the contemporary celebration of Hanukkah uh, that that took place in the intertestamental area just just before Jesus, which uh, Jesus himself celebrated in the Gospel of John, and that was also a celebration of a cleansing of the temple. This is the first Hanukkah before the contemporary Hanukkah that our, our friends in the Jewish community celebrate today. They offered, verse 17, Hanukkah for the temple. They offered 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and a sin offering for all of, uh, all of Israel, 12 male goats, representing the 12 tribes. Now, a sin offering is something that you offer to acknowledge that you're a sinner. And something that is alive gives its life in place of you. Blood is shed, reminding you of what you deserve. Something is taking your place, is taking punishment for you. The sacrifice is looking forward, of course, to the one who will come, who will fulfill all of these things. Keep in mind, I shared with you about what the prophet described, that, you know, hey, isn't this great? We're having Hanukkah. We've got the temple. And there were some people there in the church who were just, this is whack. This is, uh. Solomon. Solomon, if you want to read about Solomon's dedication ceremony, go to 1 Kings 8. Just write it down. We're not going to go there. But uh, Ezra has 400 lambs. Just to put things in perspective, Solomon had 120,000 lambs. So this would have been discouraging, particularly for young people who are coming and they're they're experiencing revival, and then you have people whose motives aren't pure, and they're just looking back, comparing. They're looking back, comparing. This isn't the same. This isn't the way it used to be. Might I say pastorally that many believers, in my experience, grow cold in their walk with God because instead of looking forward in hope, are looking to the present in gratefulness, instead of that, they look to the past. And they compare what we're back in the past. And that inevitably leads to complaining and coldness rather than rather than a quest for what is right and what is good in the building of God's people. You can look back in your spiritual life and think about, man, those days when you used to sing better than you do now or you used to read your Bible more than you do now and you used to do this and that and you romanticize those days back there and you fail to see what God is calling you to right now in the present and what he has in store for you in the future. God was stirring revival and people were missing out. Perhaps focusing on the numbers of the sacrifices. Oh, we had so many more sacrifices back then. And missing, missing the moment in front of them and the moment in the future when there would be one sacrifice that would handle everything. Oh, you want 120,000 lambs? I got one lamb that's going to come and, and handle the whole thing. Verse 18, they appointed their priests with the division of the Levites and their orders for the service of God in Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. Again, we see the, the scriptures are, are drawing them. Here we see their high view of scripture. They believe Moses wrote the Torah. Unlike progressives today, oh Moses didn't write it. You know, no, no. Moses wrote this. This is the word of God, and the word of God was doing its work. It brought them festivity. Next point on your outline, it brought them in feasts. We read in verse nineteen of the feast of Passover, the exiles observed the Passover on the fourteenth month, on the fourteenth of the first month. Pesah or Passover goes back to Exodus when God liberated His people. The death angel was sent who. Was a soldier, a warrior, soldier angel who, who who brought recompense to the enemies of God who had enslaved the people through the through the blood of the death angel comes the deliverance of the people and they annually commemorated that to be reminded again of liberation in God. Verse twenty: the priests and the Levites purified themselves, all of whom were pure. They slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the exiles, both for their brothers and the priests for themselves. They're preparing themselves. These sacrifices are huge. You have to come ready. You have to be prepared. Verse 21, the sons of Israel who returned from exile and those who separated themselves from the impurity of the nations of the land to join them to seek the Lord, the God of Israel, they too ate the Passover. Did you catch that? I know I talk fast. I'm sorry, but uh, you know, I'm already like, dang, I should have been done. But uh, verse 21, did you catch that? This verse is very interesting because it speaks not only of the Jewish people celebrating Passover, it speaks of those who had separated themselves from the nations celebrating with them. In other words, in the people coming back to the land, you had people outside of Israel. You had Gentiles. You had foreigners. It's like, uh, remember the book of Ruth? right right remember what ruth told naomi your god will be my god wherever you go i will go your people will be my people here we see that in the waves that were coming back there was medes and persians and babylonians and assyrians there were pagans who god was bringing to the temple because that's what the temple's supposed to do the priesthood is supposed to reconcile the nations so in spite of israel's not building the temple, God was actually moving and saving foreigners and outsiders. This is absolutely incredible. In in the introduction of the message I quoted from the Christianity Today article about how churches are dwindling, and that's kind of my play on get back to church or whatever, you, you know in those same studies, the thing that is really interesting is that while Christians' attendance in churches is down, secular attendance in church is up almost 10 percent right now so people coming to church are non-believers and believers aren't it's the same phenomenon here in the text God was drawing the lost to himself and look at look at how they respond verse 22 they observed the feast of the unleavened bread seven days with joy and God was causing them to rejoice that joy wasn't theirs it was God causing it and turn their heart the king of Assyria towards them to encourage them in the work of the house of God and the God of Israel. And this, is, this is fascinating. This is exciting. This is exhilarating. God was bringing revival. It's interesting here that Ezra, a little, he's a little cheeky here. He refers to the king of Assyria, but he was talking about Darius, the Persian king. What's going on here? Well, earlier in chapter 5, verse 13, he actually called Cyrus the Persian the king of Babylon too. So in in his mind, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, these all come a dime a dozen. John in the New Testament, he calls Rome Babylon. There's a dark force that's behind all of these empires. They're one and the same. But God is on the throne, and guess what? As we saw in Proverbs 21, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. This brings us to the final point on your outline, and the point is very simple, that God is faithful. The narrative moves now from this close here, in chapter 6 into chapter 7. He's actually transitioned at this point from Aramaic into talking Hebrew as he talks about the the feasts and whatnot. And now as we step into chapter 7, we fast forward actually several decades to describe another band of immigrants. And we're going to pick this up next week, um, but quickly let's just read the beginning of it and then we'll stop. Ezra 7.1. Now after these things, in the reign of Ardi of Persia, went up Ezra... The son of, the son of, the son of, the son of, a bunch of names you can't pronounce. The son of, the son of, the son of, the son of Buki, that's a good Bible name for your next kid. The son of Abishua, Phinehas, Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest. Verse 6, Then Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given him, and the king granted him all that he requested, because the hand of the Lord his God was upon them. Okay? God's hand. God's one who's faithful. Chapter 7, this is the first time we meet Ezra. We've been talking about Ezra because he's the author. So all the way up to this point, Ezra hasn't even been there yet. Because again, he's, he's, he's Jewish, but he grew up in captivity. That's all, that's all that he knew. And as I was illustrating before, he knows some Persian. He's sprinkling in Aramaic. He's got his Hebrew down. He, he's a, a tricultural kid. And it's in chapter 7 that he gets to go back. It's the first time that he is mentioned. So all of this history was just hearsay for him. He hadn't seen it himself. The chances are that when Cyrus made the decree to go back, Ezra wasn't even alive yet. So this is history that he's only studied. And now in chapter 7, he's tasting it. I think in my own life, I did a a PhD on church history in post-war Los Angeles. I studied extensively from like, 1910 up to 1960, I was born in the 70s. I didn't get to see any of that. I stepped into church history in the 70s and the 80s. I started working in the church in the 90s. But I studied all this history, and then I started to live the history. And you go, oh, this is crazy, because all that stuff that was going on then, it just recapitulates. So I've studied the history, now I'm living it, and you see the the pattern of these things. My kids can look at the pictures of history here. They weren't alive then, but they can pick up the story and then yourself enter into the story. The sermon is an invitation not for you to learn information. The sermon is an invitation for you to experience transformation and to join in participation with the work that God is doing. He has placed us here in Los Angeles to call people back to work and back to church to worship the God who deserves to be praised in this city, the God of Israel, the God of Los Angeles, the God of London, the God of China, the God of the whole earth, that we have all rebelled against, that we've all turned our backs on, that we've all done things that, that, that we regret in. And, and that's so important for us. It's so important for us because so many people, if you've lived life long enough, you know you got friends and you know you've done it to yourself. So many people define themselves by their worst moments. You define yourself by your worst moments, and you, and you get stuck on it. You get stuck on that thing that you did, the thing that you keep doing, that thing that happened to you, that person you lost. You get stuck. And here comes the Word of God to free you and to tell you, no, 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 don't define yourself by your worst moments. Define yourself by the cross of Jesus Christ who took all your worst moments and more upon Himself in order to give you life and to make you a part of His temple in whom He is drawing the nations in to come and to be saved. Israel celebrated the festivals and the feasts that were given to them. And now we respond to God's Word in celebrating the festival and feast that has been entrusted to us, one which harkens back to the Passover, It is the table of the Lord that is before us. Jesus came to His disciples. He preached the Word to them. He lifted up the bread. He said, this is a picture of my body. He lifted up the cup. He said, this is my blood. They didn't totally understand it. But church, you have had declared to you today the meaning of these things. The bread of His body died for you. The blood that was shed for you. He is the Lamb of God. Come to Him. Be set free today. Have your guilt and shame lifted. This isn't just an invitation for those who don't know Him. This is an invitation for everyone in the room. Come in repentance and faith. Come and respond to Him. Come and receive His love. There is nothing that you have done in your life that would make Him love you less if He has found you in Him. And further, there is nothing that you can do in your life to make Him love you more. Oh, the freedom of the Gospel. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing And as I close the prayer, you're invited to come to the table. Let us celebrate and let us respond to the word of God. Oh God, would you be merciful to us as you were to the people of Israel. They heard your word and were changed by it. Lord, if you don't do something, if you don't do something, nothing's going to happen. It's just a long old sermon that won't accomplish anything but if you choose to move in your grace and mercy, which I plead of you now in the name of Christ, our lives can be changed. So fill us with your Spirit. May He draw us in conviction and repentance. May He draw us in forgiveness for those who have wronged us, that we would let go and forgive others. For the sins that we have committed against You and You alone, that we would find forgiveness in You. As we come to the table, Lord, we bless the meal that is before us. Lord, may may the meal nourish us spiritually as we reflect upon all that You have done for us. The ultimate Passover, the ultimate abolition, the greatest injustice that ever happened in the earth, the innocent Son of God giving his life at the hands of guilty men. Jesus, we thank you. Such love, such love you would give for us. We thank you. And we now come pleading with you to do your thing in us. Have your way with us. Receive these songs of worship and bless us through your table. In Christ's name, amen.